Amen. Thank you for your singing this morning, church. I was thinking as we uh, were singing there at the end, you know, during the, during the first great awakening, when there was this movement of God that was sweeping across both uh, the other side of the, of the Atlantic Ocean in England and here in the U.S., that one of the things that churches would do during that time period is they would actually, they would meet together on Wednesday nights just to practice their congregational singing. So the singing would be better on Sundays. The churches would gather on Sunday nights and they would practice learning their different parts so that when they came together for Lord's Day worship, their singing would be as good as it could be. And it's just a reminder, our singing together as a church matters. Our singing together as a church is one of the things that God uses, not only that brings honor to Him, but it's one of the things that God uses to edify us. And man, I was edified through your singing this morning. Thank you for singing so well. Um, Go and grab your Bible, if you would. And open up with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you were here last week, you know that we started a verse-by-verse study going through the book of Colossians last week. This, This study will probably take us most of the rest of the year, at least deep into the fall, to finish it. And just just again to remind you, the reason why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, at least one of those reasons, is it keeps us from avoiding the hard issues in Scripture. It keeps us from avoiding the controversial topics. It's good for us to do everything that we can to make sure that we take in the whole counsel of God. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we do that recognizing that while every book of the Bible is... Uh, has the same source, meaning every book in Scripture comes from the inspiration of God. Every book of the Bible is profitable for God's people. We also recognize that the books of the Bible are different in that there are different genres. There's poetry and history. They're written by different human authors, so we'd get different vocabularies. And each book of the Bible is also written for a particular audience. So as we come to the book of Colossians, we realize that this is a letter Paul was writing to a particular church. It was a very young church that, it, that existed in what was called the Lycus River Valley. It was in Asia Minor at the time. It's modern-day Turkey. And it's a church that Paul had never actually been to. He had not founded this church. He's not the one who had gone to Colossae originally and preached the gospel. That had been done by Paul's friend Epaphras, who's mentioned in this letter. Epaphras had shown up in Colossae, he preached the good news about Jesus, people had heard and they had believed and a church had been formed there. And so Paul is writing this letter to a church that he has mostly only heard about. He knows one or two people from this area, but he's mostly only heard about the work that God's doing. And he's writing this letter to, one, encourage these new Christians in their fledgling faith to keep following Jesus. But then secondly, he's writing this letter to equip them for what's coming. Because there was a new brand of false teaching that was starting to ooze its way into this valley. It was a false teaching that pulled from lots of different sources. There was a, an element of Gnosticism and an element of legalism and a little bit of mysticism all sort of rolled into one. Maybe a way to think about it would be the Colossian false teaching was sort of the Frankenstein of false teachings. Do you remember how Frankenstein was made? The scientists took body parts from all these different corpses and sewed them together to make this monster. Well, that's what was happening in Colossae. 
These false teachers had pulled a leg off of Gnosticism and an arm off of legalism and they had combined all of that together to start presenting this new false teaching. But if you cut through it all at the core, this was a false teaching that undermined the sufficiency of Christ. It said that what you need for real spirituality is you need Jesus and. Jesus and our special brand of deep teaching. Follow us and we'll initiate you. Or Jesus and all of the Old Testament dietary rules. Or, or Jesus and this certain mystical experience with an angel. And so Paul was writing this letter just to remind them and to remind us that Jesus is all we need. And so we started last week with just looking at Paul's greeting. And, and right after he greets this church, he launches into this period of thanksgiving where Paul says, hey, I am praying for you guys regularly, and every time I pray for you, I thank God for you. Because I've heard what's happened there. I heard y'all received the gospel and your lives have been changed. So how did Paul know they had really received the gospel? Well, he tells us. He knows they have received the gospel because he lists three things. He had heard of their faith in Christ. He had heard of their love for all the saints. And he had heard of their hope as they looked toward their inheritance. So there was evidence that their lives had genuinely been changed by Jesus. And every time Paul prayed about them, he thanked God for what he had done. Okay. But that leads us into this morning. So, so far, Paul has told these people that he was praying for them. But he hasn't told them what he was praying yet. That'd be helpful to know, right? Because Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. Wouldn't it be helpful to know how Paul prayed for other Christians? That might help me know how I should be praying for my wife or my kids or how I should be praying for the church. How we should be praying. When we see somebody baptized and we make a commitment as a church, how should we pray for new Christians when they join our church body? Well, that's what Paul's going to cue us in on this morning. I'll just give you a spoiler at the beginning. Paul doesn't just go, I'm praying, I'm praying that the Lord would keep you safe. I'm praying, Lord, bless the Colossians. No, there were particular things that Paul was praying for these Christians. And I want you to see that as we read. If your Bible's open to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 this morning. And this is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, For this reason. This reason is what he just described. Because he knew they were genuinely converted. He saw evidence. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And here comes his prayer. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. For all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness 
and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, two quick things before we dive in in detail. One, notice that one of the ways Paul tries to encourage these Christians is by telling them what he prayed for them. Now think about that. It's a really helpful thing when you know somebody who's struggling to give them a call or send them a text and say, hey, I'm praying for you today. If you're actually praying, that's a good thing to do. But what we get in Paul is, it's even more helpful when you let them know what you're praying for them. If you say, hey, I'm praying for you today that God would give you a supernatural peace in this situation. I'm praying for you today that God would give you the strength to endure what you're going through with joy. Paul actually told them what he prayed as a means of encouragement. Secondly, you'll notice that what I just read isn't extremely hard to understand, but it's a little bit tricky to outline. Because Paul doesn't give like five separate things that he was praying for. Instead, it's a prayer that sort of uh, kind of cascades. Think of how a waterfall might cascade into one pool and then to the next and then into the next. That's sort of how this prayer works. So Paul starts with his first request, and that then cascades into the next. And that then cascades into four more requests. And so I'm going to try to illustrate that in the way that the outline is set up. This is not a grammatically accurate outline. I understand. Where there's a one, there's supposed to be a two. I understand that. But I'm trying to give you an idea of how the prayer flows. Okay, so here's the first request. Number one, and let me just encourage you, even if you don't normally take notes, think about taking notes this morning and using this as an outline for how you pray for our church family this week. Okay, so here's the first thing. Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So because of what he had heard, he had heard that they had received the gospel and been saved. There was a new church, maybe 10 years old. The, the oldest Christians here have been saved for 10 years. There are others who have been saved for far less than that. And when he hears this, the first thing Paul prays is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now what does that mean? Because God's will is talked about in a couple different ways in the Bible. So for one... God's will is often talked about in terms of God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is what God has planned for the course of history and what God has planned for our lives. It's God's immutable plan. God has his plan and there is no plan B. It's, it's Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything is governed by God's holy will. His plan will not fail. His plan will not be altered. That is God's sovereign will. And it's good for us to pray that God would help us rest in His sovereign will. Trust in His sovereign will. Be content in His sovereign will. But God's sovereign will is not for us to know. That's why the sovereign will of God is sometimes referred to as the secret will of God. God does not fill us in on all the ins and outs of his plan for history. We have a few pictures in prophecy. But overall, God does not give us all the ins and outs of his plan for history or of his plan for our individual lives. 
We're not meant to know the secret sovereign will of God. We trust in that we don't know it. But the other way that God's will is talked about in the Bible is what is called God's moral will. So whereas God's sovereign will is what God has planned, God's moral will is what God commands. So the moral will of God is how God calls us to live. And the moral will of God is laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. So in Scripture, it's filled with commandments. And we get principles for living in the Proverbs. And Jesus gives us all kinds of instruction about what attitudes and behaviors please God. And so the moral will of God is for us to know. Because God's revealed His moral will to us in Scripture. And so when Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that's what Paul's praying for. Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge, that they would be filled with the knowledge of how God calls His people to live. Filled with it. When you see the word filled in the Bible, in this sort of context, it means to be controlled by. So for instance, the Bible talks about people who were filled with rage. What does it mean to be filled with rage? You ever seen anybody filled with rage? Well, it means you're dominated by it. If you're filled with rage, it controls your thoughts, and it controls your words, and it controls your behavior. To be filled is to be controlled by it. So when Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he is praying that God's will would permeate and shape every aspect of their lives. That the commandments of God would form the outline of how they're going to live. And the virtues and the character traits and the priorities laid out in Scripture would shape every decision they make and would color every aspect of their lives. Do you, do you understand that? So praying to be filled with the knowledge of God's will means we're praying that our understanding of how God has called us to live and think and feel, that it fills our lives to the point that it shapes everything about us. So we begin to live life and see the world through the grid of what God has said to us about who He is and who we are and how we're supposed to live. So that God's revealed will colors everything about us. That's what it means to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So don't, don't take this as some sort of mystical thing. Whereas if they'll sit cross-legged long enough and light candles, God will infuse the mysteries of the universe into their minds. That's not what Paul is praying here at all. He's praying that every corner of their thinking and every part of their living would be permeated by what God has revealed. It's, this, is the, this is the New Testament version of the Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Where God's word shapes every part of our living and thinking. So that we'd become like Charles Spurgeon described John Bunyan. We're reading Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress now. But Spurgeon described Bunyan by saying that Bunyan's life was so permeated by God's word that if you cut him, he would bleed bibline. Like his blood type has turned into Bible because God's word so saturated his life. 
Or maybe another Old Testament reference you're familiar with that will help you think about what Paul's praying for. Psalm 119, 105. You know this verse where the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the idea that we live in a dark world. We live in a world where it can be really hard to navigate through. How am I supposed to handle this conversation? How am I supposed to think about this ethical issue? How am I supposed to make this decision? And the psalmist is saying God's word is like the lantern that shines light on the path in front of us. So God's word is what gives light to show us the way we can live, the way we should go so that our lives will please God. And don't miss the point that the very first thing Paul mentions that he's praying for these Christians is that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Doesn't that, doesn't that tell us that the Christian life requires us to know something? It requires us to know. We have to engage our minds. We have to learn and we have to think. The idea that Christianity is about shutting off your mind to somehow follow your heart is a horrible misrepresentation of what Christianity is. As if we're looking for some special form of music or form of teaching that will help us bypass our minds to get to our heart. That's not what Christianity is at all. Now, now the Christian faith has to affect more than our minds. It has to affect our emotions and our wills and our decisions. But that has to flow through the mind. You won't do right or think right or feel right if you don't know right. So he prays they'd be filled with a particular kind of knowledge. And that's why he partners it. Do you notice that last phrase with this first request? He prays that their knowledge will be partnered with wisdom and spiritual understanding. That means we need wisdom and discernment to know how God's Word applies to the millions of different situations that we face in life. That there's no, there's no set of commandments that tells you exactly what to say in every conversation. There's no set of commandments that tells you exactly what to do in every predicament that you face. So we need discernment so that we can make sense of what we're facing. And we need wisdom so we can figure out how God's Word applies to that situation. So it's knowing what God's revealed in His Word and then having the discernment so that what God has revealed bleeds out into all these different compartments of life. So this is bigger than just a rote set of memory verses. This is living lives that are permeated from stern to bow. Every part is permeated by knowing what God has said to us in His Word so that shapes everything about how we live. So, if you want to be praying for our church, if you want to pray for your husband or wife, this is a great thing to pray for. Pray that their life, if you want to pray for me as your pastor, pray this. Pray that my life would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the first thing. And that then spills down into this second one, cascades into second request, that we would walk worthy. Or, he says it two ways, that we would please the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Notice it begins with the word that, meaning if our lives are filled with the knowledge of God's will, this will be the result. 
that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now, you know the word walk in the Bible has to do with your daily conduct, your daily life. Just like, just like you walk one step at a time, well, that's what life is. It's one decision at a time, one thought at a time, one conversation at a time. And Paul prays that their walk will be worthy of the Lord. That means he's praying that they would live in a way that's consistent with who the Lord is. So you claim to trust in Jesus. Paul's praying that they would live lives that match what they claim. Okay, pray this for your husband or wife. Pray that God would help them live a life that reflects how they value Jesus. That there would be a consistency. I guess the negative way to say this is Paul is praying that they would not be hypocrites. That's another good thing to pray. Lord, help me not, help me not say that Jesus is great with my lips and, and then live in a way that makes Jesus seem small. Help me not talk about how valuable Jesus is and then live in a way that makes Jesus seem to be insignificant. Help how I live show the worthiness of who the Lord is. And the other way of saying that, this is a parallel phrase, is Paul prays that their lives will be fully pleasing to Him. That's the same thing as walking a word, living a worthy walk. Pray that their life, pray that your life, pray that our life as a church family will be fully pleased. Fully pleasing means pleasing in every way. I want every aspect of my life to please the Lord. I want how I treat my wife to please the Lord. I want how I engage with my kids to please the Lord. I want how I handle myself on social media to please the Lord. If, if I'm single, I want how I think about dating and marriage to please the Lord. I want how I spend money to please the Lord. I want how I treat my boss to please the Lord. I want, I want what I do on Sunday to please the Lord. And I want what I do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I want that to please the Lord. It's take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. That's the prayer here. Lord, I want every, every angle, I don't want there to be a part of my life that is cordoned off. Lord, help us not be a church that has avenues of our lives that are okay to cordon off and for You not to be Lord over. Help every part be fully pleasing. That is a good thing to pray. And that then cascades into the next. So what that leads to is Paul then mentions four ways that our lives can be pleasing to God. Or you might say, here come four aspects of a worthy walk. Here's the first one. First, he prays for fruitfulness. Looking again at verse 10, Paul prays that they would be fruitful in every good work. Fruitful in good works. Now, I want to quickly say, you remember a few weeks ago we were in Ephesians 2 where Paul makes the point that we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works. You can never do enough good works to earn your salvation. We are not saved for, uh, by good works. But we are saved for good works. So that through faith, listen now, through faith, 
Your life is attached to Jesus the way a branch is attached to a vine. And the life of Jesus flowing through us should result in good, God-honoring works. And good works are pleasing fruit to God. God's pleased when the lives of His people blossom in good works. Well, that, that raises, I think, a pretty practical question. What in the world would good works be? Talk about good works. Ephesians 2 says we we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. What would a good work be? Let me just give you one list. This is very abbreviated, very truncated. It's in 1 Timothy where Paul's talking about the church's widow list. There were certain kinds of widows the church was allowed to put on a widow list to watch out for, to take care of. And here's part of the qualifications for who could go on the widow list. He talks about their good works. Listen, 1 Timothy 5 verse 10. Paul says of these ladies, they are well reported for good works. And then he lists what those would be, some of them. If she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. Notice how practical this is. So good works, some would be. Paul, say, Paul says bringing up children. That means bringing up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord is a good work. Showing hospitality is a good work. That means opening your home and opening your table and being generous with what you have to minister to people. Caring for the afflicted. Serving the saints with the gifts and the resources that you have. Good works in the Bible could not be more practical. When you encourage someone who's struggling in their faith, that's a good work. When you open your home to try to care for someone, that's a good work. When you disciple your kids, that's a good work. When you care for somebody who's suffering, that's a good work. And when you do those things by God's strength and for God's glory, that's fruit in your life that brings honor and glory to God. That's the fruit of good works. And a fruitful life pleases God. So pray. Listen, here's something to pray for for our church. Pray that our church would abound in the fruit of good works. Pray for your husband. Pray for your wife. Pray for your Sunday school class. Pray for your elders. That our lives would abound in the fruit of good works. Here's the second thing he mentions that would correspond with living a fully pleasing life. Next, he prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God. Look at the last phrase of verse 10. Paul prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. That makes me think of Paul's words in Philippians 3. You remember when Paul says that all the things he once valued in his life, he now counted as loss compared to Christ. And then Paul says, just to know him. And the power of his resurrection. That, listen, that is the cry of a converted heart. We want to know God. So verse 9, we were praying for the knowledge of God's will. But now Paul is praying that they would grow in their knowledge of God himself. That we would know God personally. Not, not just facts and figures and information. But we would know him. We, we would know what it is to pray the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He 
He leads me, he makes me lie down in greed pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. We know him as our shepherd. Because this is a good thing to pray. Pray that your church would know God. Our lives will please God the better and the more deeply we know God. And then here's the third thing. Third, Paul prays for strength. Let's pray for each other that we'd be strengthened by God. Look at verse 11. Again, this is part of Paul's prayer. He prays that they would be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now notice, God is gloriously mighty. God has unlimited power. And Paul prays that God would strengthen His people according to His might. What sort of strength is Paul praying for here? Is Paul praying for physical strength? Is he praying that we'd have rippling muscles and deadlift 700 pounds? No, he's praying here for spiritual strength. He's praying that God would make their hearts strong. And let me give, give one other correction. The sort of spiritual strength Paul is asking for is not the kind of spiritual strength, spiritual power that you hear the word of faith preachers talk about. He's not praying that they would have the power to claim their million dollars or to claim their new job or to cast out the demon of cancer. No, there's a, a particular sort of spiritual strength he's asking God for. It's a spiritual strength that will allow them to do what? What does the verse say? Paul prays that they would have strength so that they would have patience and long-suffering with joy. The, the word patience there is really the word for endurance. Paul's praying that God would give them spiritual staying power. So they wouldn't walk away, so they wouldn't give up, so they wouldn't collapse under the weight, so they wouldn't bail out. You might say that Paul is praying for spiritual stick to itiveness. He's praying that they would stick with it. We need God to give us staying power. Now you see why Paul would pray for this here, don't you? Why would he ask that God would give them endurance? Well, you realize that if you really try to live your life filled with the knowledge of God's will, if you really are committed that you're going to live so that every aspect of your life is fully pleasing to the Lord, your life at times is going to be unbelievably difficult. Because you're going to be viewing life in a way that is in direct tension to the way most people around you are going to view life. You're going to be seeking to live in a way that is rubbing against the flow of our society. And so in the face of that, we pray that God would give spiritual endurance. Listen, the, the strength that God gives to His people is not just about momentary burst. That's how we often think of it. I just need God to give me strength to to proclaim the gospel in that setting. I just need God to give me strength so that I hold to my convictions. God does that, but God's strength is not mainly about burst of power. God's strength is mainly about Him giving His people endurance so that we don't take our hand off the plow. 
So we don't turn back. So we keep following Jesus come what may. I was just reading this this past week. Um, the, The decisive last battle that Napoleon fought in was at Waterloo, 1815. And he had actually been exiled. He escaped from exile. He regathered the army of France. He reclaimed the throne of France for like 100 days. And it was all brought to an end when he faced the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. And after, after France was defeated, the victorious general was describing why his army won. And listen to what he said. He said, Our men were not braver than the enemy. They were merely brave for five minutes longer. I love that quote. They didn't win because they were extraordinarily brave. They just won because they were brave for a little bit longer. They just endured for a little bit longer than the enemy. There is a remarkable spiritual power that comes with endurance. Listen, make sure you take this in. And let me say this real practically, especially for new Christians. Here's a pattern. If you've been saved for two, three years or less... Let me tell you a pattern that you often will see in the lives of new Christians. They'll come to faith in Jesus, they'll know the joy of having sins forgiven, and and everything is sort of exciting and brand new, and their whole worldview is getting reshaped, and it's all so new, and it's all wonderful, and and then you get into the grind of the Christian life. The the newness of it wears off, And, and listen, that's where Scores of Christians end up bogging down for years. So pray for yourself. Pray for friends you know who have come to faith in Christ recently. Pray that God would give them strength to endure. Pray that they would push through. Pray that they would keep clinging to Christ and pressing into Christ. And then the second word, Paul says patience and long-suffering... It is a very similar word. If there's a difference, it would be this. The word patience or endurance usually has to do with persevering through trying circumstances. Whereas the word long-suffering usually has to do with persevering through trying people. You can, you can endure trying circumstances and fail when it comes to trying people. Isn't that what happened with Moses? Moses endured all sorts of unbelievably hard circumstances. And where did Moses' failure finally come that kept him out of going into the promised land? He lost his cool with a bunch of complaining people. He wasn't long-suffering. So we need God to give us strength through the ups and downs of life and the highs and lows of emotions. And we need God to give us the strength to be long-suffering with people. I don't get to stop acting like a Christian because I'm talking with someone who annoys me. I don't get to stop acting like a Christian because I'm dealing with someone who rubs me the wrong way. And so we're praying for endurance and we're praying for long-suffering. And ultimately, I'll give one more phrase and then we'll look at the next one. Ultimately, we don't just want to endure like Eeyore with our heads down, feeling sorry for ourselves. What's the last phrase in that? That we would have patience and long-suffering with joy. We endure with joy because God is with us. So pray for strength to endure with joy. That's a good prayer request. 
Here's the next one. Number four, Paul prays for their thankfulness. Verse 12. Paul says, this, no, this is part of his prayer for them. He's praying that they would be giving thanks to the Father. So Paul's praying that they will be thankful. Which tells me that my life won't be pleasing to God if I'm not living a life of gratitude toward God. But again, he doesn't just pray that they would be thankful. His prayer for thanksgiving then cascades into four things they should be thankful for. Let me give those to you. First, Paul prays that they'll be thankful that they have been qualified. Look at how he says it in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now notice, Paul doesn't pray that they would one day be qualified. Their faith was already in Jesus, so they were qualified. He's just praying that they would be thankful for it. He's praying that they would be in awe of what God had done. God has qualified us for the inheritance, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. To be qualified means to be made worthy. To be qualified means to be made deserving. God has made us worthy of the inheritance. Now let me just pause and say, I am not worthy of any sort of inheritance from God apart from His grace. I'm a sinner, which means I positioned myself as the enemy of God. That's where I was. I threw off God's authority and lived like I was the one in charge. I, I had the audacity. You and I both had the audacity to live like we knew better than God. Like we were smarter than God. And what we deserved for that was the judgment of God. That, that is the only inheritance that I deserve from God was judgment. But Paul is saying that God has qualified us of receiving a different sort of inheritance. And he did that by leading us to Christ. He did that by showing us our sin and by showing us the Savior who met the qualifications for us. And showing us the Savior who went to the cross and died on our behalf. And he opened our hearts so that we believe the gospel. And when we did that, God put Jesus' perfect record on my side of the ledger. Through faith, I stand now in Christ. I personally am not qualified, but God has made me qualified. He has made me worthy of the full inheritance of the saints. He's made me deserving because He's positioned me in Jesus who is once for all and forever deserving. So he's made us qualified. And here's another way to think about it, being qualified for the inheritance. Who's qualified to receive an inheritance? Children. Only children are qualified for an inheritance. Well, we by nature were not children. We by nature, Ephesians 2 says, we were strangers and aliens. But now what God has done for us in Christ is God has adopted us into his family. He's made us sons and daughters. And now that he has made us sons and daughters, he has qualified us. He's made us worthy of his inheritance. Let me just say something real personal and practical here. 
This is one of those true Christians that you need to take deep down in your soul. Listen, in Christ, God has made you worthy. You need to take that deep down into your soul because there's going to be lots of times in the Christian life where everything in your heart is going to cry out and say, I am not worthy. Satan's going to whisper in your ear and say, after what you did, who are you to pray? Do you think God wants to hear from you after that? After what you've done, why would you ever go to church? You're not worthy of that. And you can say in those times, I am not worthy, but he has made me worthy. He has hidden my life in Christ, and Christ is eternally worthy. I'm not qualified, but he has made me qualified. And you would think that would be something that we would never get over. But apparently we do because Paul has to pray that we would continue to be thankful to God that he has qualified us. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing he calls us to be thankful for is we've been delivered. Look at how he says it in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Delivered means rescued. God rescued us. From what? Where were we? Well, he says we were under the power of darkness. That's the kingdom that we lived in. We lived our lives under Satan's authority. We went along with the current of this fallen world which Satan rules over and we were his slaves. See, before conversion you thought you were free, but what the Bible shows us is we weren't free at all. We were slaves until God rescued us. And this is what happens at conversion. God bursts into the kingdom of darkness and He snatches you out of that kingdom and He moves you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And being in a new kingdom means you have a new king now. You now live under the authority of King Jesus. Do, do you see how dramatic conversion is being described here? Conversion is a revolution. You have a new king. You have new loyalties. You have a new people. You have a new destiny. All of that's changed because God delivered you. And Paul prays that we would thank God for that. Third thing he prays is we would thank God that we've been redeemed. Moving into the first part of verse 14, Paul says of Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood. We thank God we've been redeemed. Redeemed means to pay a price, to pay a price to purchase one's freedom. This is the word that would be used of the ransom that would be paid to free a hostage. This is a word that was used in Paul's day for going into the slave market and purchasing a slave out of the slave market. That's the same word he uses to describe what God's done with us. And salvation, God bought us out of the slave market. He set us free. He set us free from the wages of our sin. He set us free from the wrath of God. He set us free from bondage to Satan. He freed us. What was the price that was paid? He tells us in the verse, doesn't he? That we were redeemed, he says, through his blood. What was the price of our freedom? We've been singing about it all morning. 
Our freedom came through Christ's blood. It came at the expense of Jesus' life. He laid his life down at the cross. Jesus took the, the shackles of my sin on his wrist, and he took the guilt of my sin on his shoulders, and he took the punishment for my sins on his back, and he did all of that so that we can go free. That's what it means to be redeemed. And then here's the fourth one. Paul prays that we'd be thankful that we'd be forgiven. Did you notice that last phrase of verse 14? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Our sins have been forgiven. That means the, the debt's been canceled. The guilt's been lifted. The the stain's been removed. The ledger has been wiped clean. How many of our sins have been forgiven? We sang it earlier in, in The Power of the Cross, didn't we? Where he says, Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. The full ledger of our sins against God was taken by Jesus at the cross. The full ledger. That means, that means the thousands and thousands of sins that you and I have committed that we never even thought a second about. Do you realize how many sins you and I have committed that we didn't even think about? The thousands of little white lies that we thought were no big deal and the times that we took God's name in vain, the millions of moments that were dominated by selfishness, those thousands and thousands and thousands of sins we didn't even think of were put on his ledger at the cross. But listen, so were all those sins that we think often of. So were all those sins that every time they creep back up in your mind, a seeking feeling starts falling in the pit of your stomach and you feel afresh the weight and the guilt and the stain of that sin. Every one of those sins was taken by Jesus at the cross as well. All paid for. That's what we're going to end singing this morning. Maybe the best verse in any song that was ever done. My sins, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. My sin, the full ledger, was paid for by Jesus at the cross. And Paul is praying that these people would continually express in their prayer their thankfulness to God for his forgiveness. And I'll, I'll just point out one last thing. Notice that all the things Paul's talking about here are things that are done. They've been qualified, they're forgiven, they're redeemed, they're delivered. All of that stuff is stuff that's already been done and Paul knows it's been done because they have put their faith in Jesus. Okay, this only makes sense in light of what he set up in verse 4. Paul set up in verse 4 that he had heard and was confident that they, they had faith in Christ Jesus. And all the things that he mentions at the end of this prayer are things that are only true for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. This is not 
a universal promise. This is not saying everyone out there has had their sins forgiven and everyone out there has been delivered. This is true for everyone who puts their trust in Christ. So my, my challenge to you as we come to an end is trust in Christ. Why in the world would you go through your life and keep holding on to your pride? Why in the world would you dig your heels in and keep wrestling, trying to convince yourself you're fine on your own when everything in Scripture and everything in your heart cries out, condemned? Repent of that. Trust in Christ and know what it is to be delivered. Know what it is to be qualified. Know what it is to be forgiven. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.